welcome to Screen Quest, a podcast where a fellowship of film lovers and armchair movie experts plays film roulette. I am one of your hosts, Chris Waterman from Jacksonville, Florida, joined by Mae Finch, also from Jacksonville, Florida. And Hello. Jo- <laughs> and joined once again by Will Rotondi from Greenville, South Carolina. Hey, what's going on, guys? Not too much. This is our official first episode where we will be talking about contact, specifically the mirror scene. We've got a lot of good stuff uh, prepared for you on today's show. We'll also be drawing our first side quest card, which is going to generate a spontaneous discussion. We have no idea what that card's going to be. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how this all goes down. We wanted to start off the show uh, with a uh, little brief warm-up opener segment. Uh, I'm calling this our word of the show, and we're going to rotate through several of these as the show progresses, so it won't always be a word of the show. But for today, we're going to introduce you to a film term. Uh, So straight from studiobinder.com, which is an excellent site. Uh, It's a little film glossary that has great uh, multimedia uh, aids to kind of teach different film concepts. Uh, the word of the day today is mise en scène, which uh, translates from French to mean setting the stage. I've also heard to put into place um, as a translation. I do not speak French, um, so I'm going strictly off of what's off Studio Binder. Uh, but what mise en scène is, is essentially all of the elements that you would think of when you probably think of uh, cinematography. So sets, props, lighting, costumes, uh, even actor blocking. So where actors are. Uh, placed within uh, the camera shot are all considered parts of mise-en-scene. The example that they use on studiobinder.com, which I think is uh, one a lot of people can relate to, is Wes Anderson um, films because he has such a distinct uh, style of mise-en-scene. Everything from his use of colors uh, to uh, placing in little items in the shot that tell you without, um, you know, uh, exposition, verbal exposition, what that character might be about. Um, so there's, there's your word of the day. Um, had either of you heard of this just out of curiosity before, uh, we talked off mic about it. Did you ever heard this term before? No, but now I have a fancy way to say the vibe of the film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. I I love this expression. I think it, it, it does indeed sound fancy and it's a really cool concept. And, um, when you start to like, you know, a, a lot of times like with cinematography, uh, like it's like you know good, good cinematography like when you see it but starting to pick apart like a scene and looking at all of those things especially actor positions the other thing I liked in that article uh, from studiobinder.com was they talked about um, I think it was that one it may have been something else um, that I read because I, I flipped through a few um, was the um, uh, sitting and standing and the godfather which is a film May and I just saw in theaters uh, and how that translates to power dynamics so even little things like mm-hmm. that can can really drive home a point um, subconsciously for your, for your audience members. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and uh, switch over to our, uh, actually, I've already got the board pulled up. This is perfect. Uh, and we're going to draw our first uh, side quest card. So are you all ready? Born Let's ready. Do it. <laughs> all right. Our first side quest card is Dreamcast. And I'm going to read the prompt. Uh, so our audience members know what Dreamcast is. Like all of our topics, we came up with these collaboratively. Uh, for this particular one, the prompt is, if you could recast any character in any movie, who would you pick and why? 
so do any of my co-hosts have a strong uh, nominee for this? I, I, either of you um, have somebody that you would like to recast in a film? <laughs> it's tough, right? It's tough to think about like who like you would substitute <laughs> out. So I like while while we're doing a little brainstorming, I will, I'll tell you a good practical example for a film that we discussed in our first podcast uh, th- where this kind of worked out. Uh, so originally Eric Stoltz was supposed to play Marty McFly in back to the future because oh. Michael J. Fox was filming, um, a TV show at the time and he just was not working out. Like I've seen some of that test footage. It's not that Eric Stoltz is not a good actor. It's just that sometimes the role is not right. And through happy circumstances, uh, he was recast pretty early on. They'd shot a you know sig- significant amount, but um, they were able to kind of swap out um, actors, and uh, the rest is, is sort of history. So there's a little bit of off the cuff trivia uh, for anybody that may not know that. When I think of that, I heard isn't it true that originally Will Smith was in the running to be Neo in the Matrix, and he turned it down? So I feel like I've heard that before. And part of me was always really interested. I mean, I know that Keanu Reeves has always been, I mean, he has always been Neo for as long, I mean, since, for me, since high school. <laughs> but it's like, I don't know, I would I would be very fascinated to have seen what Will Smith's sort of take on Neo would have been like, just because he's been in such a variety of film, uh, film uh, styles before. I mean, he's been, I mean, growing up, we all knew him as Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but... I mean, he's been in more serious films before. And so to to see someone who's supposed to be as, I guess, sort of stoic as Neo's character was for all of those Matrix films. I mean, granted, I know that, that sort of the criticism of Keanu Reeves is always for a lot of the stuff that he does is that it's, there's not a lot of emotion behind it. And whether or not that's intentional um, is debatable. But I feel like to see somebody who is so very much... Uh, like a lot of what Will Smith's roles have been in, I feel like he's very, uh, he's very, he moves a lot. There's a lot of motion going on with the, with the character that he's portraying and the emotions that he's trying to evoke. So I just sort of wonder to watch somebody more just reserved like that in that role. I would have been interested to see what that take would have been like. Yeah. That's, that's a really actually, good one. Uh, yeah. I love that because like, it's kind of tied to like the history of the movie, right. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like it's weird because like you think like will smith prior to like the matrix like the roles were largely like you know kind of comedic action like roles mm-hmm. but he's since shown that he's much more versatile than than that right um i wonder like had they made that movie in 99 would would he have been kind of like that same sort of like character type that he like had played up to that point or would that have been like sort of a breakout role i don't know what do you guys think uh well I'm, I'm trying to remember which one because I don't know if you guys remember the era when there was a whole spate of like robots are going to kill us movies. Mm-hmm. Oh and yeah, apocalypse movies. I'm trying to remember which one he was in. But uh, iRobot, I know he was in that one for sure. Thank you. Uh, yeah. He was an iRobot. He was in the Man in, Bla- Man in Black mm-hmm. stuff, and I feel like that is much more in kind of that Matrix genre. And I wonder if like. If he'd been in the Matrix, he would have been almost too recognizable as like the Matrix person and wouldn't have done uh, those things. Yeah, that's valid. Yeah, interesting point. Um, I I think he may have been able to like so. Keanu Reeves does like a, he looks stunned like uh, <laughs> as soon as he's pulled out of the Matrix, like which yeah. works well. Like you know that like like whoa like that that <laughs> like you know <laughs> whole thing is like 
pretty indicative. And like he, he plays that well. I, I wonder if Will Smith would have maybe perhaps done a better job being more believable. Like, yo, what the fuck is going on? Like, you know, like I think he would have brought a little more like maybe like humanity. Uh, Less to passive. That. Less passive about all of it. 100%. Yes. Um, I, I wouldn't have minded some quips like, you know, from, from Neo, like when he's like fighting and, you know, kind of uh, chewing the scene with um, like Hugo, we- Hugo Weaving's uh, Agent Smith. I think that, that would have been a very oh, yeah. different, interesting sure. dynamic, like, but more back and forth for sure. I feel like that would have been very much like his character. Uh, you, you were talking about like uh, robots coming to kill us, but I always remember him too from like Independence Day. And so you're yeah. talking about like the snarkiness, sort of the banter that he and Jeff Goldblum had. And that film, I feel like sort of the same thing, mirroring that with Hugo Weaving and Agent Smith, that could have been really cool. So, yeah. Would have been a very different movie. Like that's that's for sure. I mean, there there's no doubt about it that um, it would have been a very different Matrix. Um <laughs> who that character becomes too like is you know in the in the subsequent films like i think like that's also an interesting question because neo changes quite a bit throughout the becomes more confident and then as you kind of get into the third movie which i haven't seen since theaters so uh you have to forgive probably my my lapse of uh memory of some of the specifics but um i seem to recall there's like some vulnerability there that again like depending on when in his career like that would have been hypothetically made like i think will smith um maybe could have done a better job because I, I there's some stuff that i just did not buy from um keanu unfortunately like in the uh the later or the third uh matrix film but agreed yeah and interestingly enough isn't jada pinkett smith in one of them one, one of the she matrix is. films yeah she was in two and three well and technically also um the matrix uh resurrections as well she reprises her role of niobe so that was pretty cool to have her be in that so yeah to have his wife be in those films too would have been interesting (laughs) uh i i can imagine some great chemistry probably with um both carrie and moss and uh uh, I, I am about to say the wrong actor's name. Morpheus is Lawrence Fishburne. There we go. Had to like do a little, <laughs> go through my memory palace really quickly <laughs> to like pull it out. Um, I, yeah, I Does your memory palace just there. look like a VHS store? Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> nice. how did you know? It's just Blockbuster video. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Has that smell to it also when you walk through the aisles? Yeah. Carpet and popcorn. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Classic. Uh, I, I ate that from Sopranos. There's a character in the Sopranos that describes that. And I was like, that's the most perfectly uh <laughs> perfect description for like what Blockbuster used to smell like. Very cool. Um anything else we want to uh you know in go through that little alternate timeline and, and discuss? I think the action scenes he definitely could have handled. Um oh, yeah for sure like that would have been a strength uh for that like recasting choice um yeah i don't know uh man i i am like the more we talk about this the more i'm I'm kind of bummed that that didn't happen just like for curiosity's sake nothing else when did um i'm blanking on the name of it now the action series that keanu reeves is in it's on the it's it's very obvious i'm just john john wick john wick when did the first john wick come out Oh, that's a good question. I can search because I have the power <laughs> of Google at my fingertips here. It'd be funny if, like, in this alternate universe, Will Smith then also played John Wick. John Wick. 2014, <laughs> to answer your yeah. question. Yeah, and, I, I mean, I've never seen John Wick, with much to the um, annoyance of many of my, my friends uh, and family members, but I, I own all three of them. I just haven't gotten around to it, but 
from what I know about John Wick, I could totally see Will Smith doing great in that role as well. Or uh, yeah, yeah. It would also humanize it a lot, but I don't. Maybe it wouldn't work because with John Wick, it's like he's this superhuman ex-assassin essentially. He's not actually superhuman, but what he's able to do is like crazy and superhuman, and he's kind of like uh, a monster that you can relate to because you know he he misses his dead dog. Uh, <laughs> and I feel like I feel like with Will Smith he would humanize it to the point where it was um, like definitely more relatable but less you would see John Wick as less of just a, an absolute machine <laughs> yeah so he, here's an interesting question so since we're going down that road uh, before we pivot to our, our main topic of the show uh, so then um, what will smith roles would you like reverse like is there a role like keanu reeves like could have like played like like say like an irobot like detective or something like that like is there is there one where you'd want to swap them there as well obviously the live action aladdin yeah oh my god keanu reeves is the, i didn't think for a second like, did play, oh my god he played the genie that would have been absolutely crazy Epic. yes I joke. I joke. Uh, no, I love that choice. <laughs> I love that choice. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, I, I, like oddly enough, like I wonder, like if he had like a pursuit of happiness, like type, um, like role, like where you know, kind of a father son, um, like struggling, uh, like tearjerker kind of thing. Like, does he have the chops for that? I, I'm trying to think of like Keanu Reeves has ever done something like that before. Have you guys seen Always Be My Maybe? Mm -mm. Uh, It's a a rom-com that came out on Netflix a few years ago. It's not great, but it does have Keanu Reeves in it as himself. (laughs) Is that the dinner scene, like, at the restaurant? Oh, I've seen that clip. I've not seen the the film yet. It has Keanu Reeves playing himself. And it's so funny because you just realize he's just kind of a normal, weird, like, quirky celebrity, basically, at least in this role. Um, He does punch someone in the face. Yeah. So he still has some action, but he's also like a person that converses and is <laughs> more down to earth. Amazing. Uh yeah. Well, I like this has been uh, like awesome discuss like this went places I didn't expect it to, but that's the beauty <laughs> of podcasting and doing a spontaneous, you know, topic, right? Like and I think like these are going to be challenging probably at times because you have to we have to rack our brains, but that's sort of the fun in it too. Like um, to contrast it, you know, our, our, our planned like uh, topic that we have like week to week. So um, awesome. Well done. Well, I, I applaud you. Good choice there. Nice. And while we're at it, maybe we could swap out Keanu Reeves with Will Smith for point break and get him <laughs> in there with Patrick Swayze, do some surfing. <laughs> there we go. That would have been excellent. Maybe that's like an alternate uh, timeline for that uh, for the Fresh Prince. Maybe that's what he does. He you know get, gets into the FBI, becomes a surfer. <laughs> like that's the multiverse for them. Yeah, there you go. Endless possibilities. Yeah, excellent. Sweet. Well, very good. Um, let's go ahead and pivot to our topic of the show. So on last week's uh, episode, we drew a uh, card, which is uh, chose our first film for us, which is Contact. Specifically, uh, we are going to be analyzing uh, the mirror sequence. And for this uh, first part of it, especially going to turn it over to my co-host, May, who nominated the film. May's going to tell us a little bit about how they 
made the the sequence and uh just give us some cool um vfx uh trivia here so take it away may all right so i'm i'm very fond of this film i watched it when i was a nerdy science kid somewhat like the main character um so this has always been dear to my heart but rewatching it as an adult was really nice and being able to appreciate all the cinematography and special effects that they had was pretty cool um for those that don't know uh, Contact is based on the Carl Sagan novel published in 1985. Um, the movie came out in July of 1997. Um, unfortunately, Sagan died in 96, so he didn't get to actually see the final product, but he did help ensure it was scientifically accurate as possible up until his death. Um, it's directed by Robert Zemeckis and starring Jodie Foster, Matthew McConaughey, and James Woods, among others. Uh, it won a Hugo Award for Best Traumatic Presentation, and has been pretty well received by audiences and critics. Um, I went on Rotten Tomatoes just to see kind of like what the reviews were there. And uh, this one sums it up pretty well. The only negative reviews I saw um, were that quote, contact takes forever to lift off, <laughs> end quote. Uh, it can be a little slow paced at times. Um, but yeah, overall a well-received movie and uh, probably the best known scene is this mirror scene. The mirror scene is very famous because of the way that it's shot. Um, a quick descriptor of the scene. So Ellie Arroway, our protagonist, is nine years old. She was looking at stars with her father, which is something that you know she loves to do all the time. She's a budding astronomer. And she sees something really cool in the sky, calls out to her dad, and doesn't get a response. She hears a crash from downstairs. So she goes running down the stairs and um, the camera pans as she's looking down the stairs and you can see that there's this popcorn bowl that's just fallen over and spilt all the popcorn everywhere and she gasps and she goes running down and it's, you, you only ever see her father's hand in the whole scene, but it's implied he's collapsed and is having some kind of medical issue and she says she'll go get the medicine for him because he's not responding and she runs back up the stairs and um, the camera angle is like in front of her kind of like showing her facing the camera, running up the stairs. And then as she gets to the medicine cabinet, uh, you realize that you're actually on the reflective side of like the mirror in the medicine cabinet and everything is now inverted. So you see her open the cabinet after kind of feeling like you've come out of the mirror yourself. She grabs the medicine and she leaves the frame. And the way they achieve that is actually really simple, um, surprisingly. But before we get there, I do want to talk about what that scene was originally going to look like. So I have this on my trivia board. Um, the mirror scene in contact actually was going to be kind of a bullet time effect originally, the same way uh, that the Matrix has that bullet time effect. And it was going to be of her dad kind of like collapsing in slow-mo as Ellie walks around. And they decided not to do that for a few reasons. I think the main one was just that it was going to be very graphic and sad and they wanted to keep the focus on Ellie more than her dad um so uh, they went with this trick instead and I think that was a great move and um the way they achieved it is through using a blue screen so there's a total of three shots there is our intrepid cameraman for the first shot who actually runs up backwards up the stairs while uh, Ellie is, is running towards him and manages not to trip up until the point where they get to the medicine cabinet. There's a second shot of her opening the medicine cabinet and in the place of the mirror, there is actually a blue screen. 
And the third shot is after she has closed the medicine cabinet. Um, you, you just see the picture of her and her dad. And it's, it's another way to kind of communicate like, oh, this is the end for, for, for her dad and for that relationship. Um, and you see that reflected in the mirror. And that was also added in with a blue screen. So total of three shots for what ends up being a really trippy, cool effect. Um, and I was very impressed. Um, I don't know if you two noticed this when you're watching it this week, but they actually like added little pieces of dirt and water stains to the mirror in post to really mm -hmm. sell the effect because it had just been a blue screen there. There was no actual mirror in the scene. I, I didn't, but now I, I want to go back. I watched this like several times in a row, like after we, you know, finished the film, like just to like drink it in and like uh, it's always great to analyze like a, a, an amazing like sequence like that and just to see how much like really went into it but I did not notice that um and I'm probably not for like lack of um uh trying on their part to make it look impressive I just I think this whole thing is so seamless that it probably just like to me it was like oh yeah that's a mirror you know um when in fact it's not so yeah how did you guys feel watching that scene for the either the first time or rewatching it now uh, so I, I did actually didn't remember this uh, scene being in the film because I hadn't seen this since it released in 97. Um, so when uh, I think like, I don't know, randomly you and I were hanging before this podcast was even like, a, a tw you know, a twinkle in my eye. Um, you had said <laughs> this is like one of your favorite sequences. Um, and uh, I did, just didn't recall it. And uh, I think it it works fantastically in the movie. Uh, I'm glad they didn't do the bullet time. Uh Thing. I think it would have been too distracting, number one, probably for audiences at the time. And, and as you pointed out, it, it really would pull the focus away from Ellie, which is what the se sequence is all about. Um, like you were drawing a very strong, um, like I, this, this sequence made my wife like, you know, tear up um, when she was watching it. Um, but like, you know, it's trying to evoke a very strong emotional response. And I think it's successful the way that, uh, that it pulls it off. How about you, Will? Um, you know, it's funny. I it's been a while since I've watched this film, and I remember the first couple of times I, watching it back in '97, or probably a year or so after that when it came out uh, to actually own. But it's been nice to go back and watch it again because it's been so long, and I could remember most of what had um, had taken place. I remember that the scene itself, in particular, which I always thought was pretty cool, and I've always wondered about how they'd done it before. So it was nice to get a little refresher about what went into the work that they did. I didn't realize just how much detail uh, maybe that you were talking about with the, um, which is the marks on the, on the mirror there. And so reading through what you shared with us, I thought was great. I mean, I, I didn't realize just how, how much went into stuff back then that wasn't necessarily practical effects. So that was really cool. Yeah. The, they could do some like computer virtual effects, obviously, but just not nearly on the level of, of today and a lot of hand work. <laughs> Definitely. Unfortunately. Another cool thing about the scene um, that, I mean, I read about doing research for this episode, but I noticed just watching it again is time slows down, not as Ellie's going up the stairs, but in the last few steps before she reaches the medicine cabinet. And I didn't think much about it. I thought it was just kind of adding drama to the scene until you get that really heartbreaking scene right after her dad's funeral with um, the pastor. And he's telling her like, you know, some things they just, there's no reason they happen. And it's trying to be comforting. And Ellie's only response is 
I should have put the medicine downstairs so I could get there sooner. And I feel like the camera slowed down in that moment because that's the moment she's like playing over in her head every day probably is like if I had just been a bit faster, just uh, <laughs> gut-wrenching. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, this is a great example of how you can like show don't tell, like I think, right? Like there's no question uh, about how she's feeling, you know, that there is that weird sort of like dreamlike quality, like when, when you're being chased in your dream and you can't run fast enough, that's what it reminded me of a little bit. Um, yeah. And then just the way that like, as the medicine uh, cabinet door swings back and you get that like last look at like the photo of her and her dad, like, again, no exposition, like whatsoever. It's just like everything you need to know about her emotional state, uh, probably like in that moment and sense really, because of where that scene kind of fits into like the the film itself um which i'm sure we'll talk about uh here in a few i i love that you did mention the cameraman because uh in that interview that you sent will and i um prior to recording um they did uh say this poor guy like <laughs> was exhausted <laughs> from having to, to do multiple takes <laughs> yeah this tracking shot up up the stairs uh, bless him awesome yeah any any other thoughts on on that scene I could I talk was, about it all day, but I want to hear from you guys. <laughs> I thought it was really cool that uh, that they focused so much on her, just her uh, her facial expressions, focusing on her going up the stairs and going back. Like you had, you talked about the only part that you see of her father is just his hand. You know, and you see the bowl that's on the ground, and you sort of infer what's happened. But at the same time, for her to be, you know, thinking about what she could have done and if she had acted faster, and how this has been such a pivotal moment in her life. Um, that it's interesting, you know, just sort of focusing on her character as well, just the camera always staying on her. And so, yeah, I thought that was really just adding to the the emotional impact of that scene for people watching. Yeah. And, um, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, <laughs> uh, hats off to, um, to Jenna Malone, who plays uh, young Ellie, like d- very expressive, you know like uh, again um it's i mean it's challenging to be an actress like anyway uh but like to, to have to do it all with your your face essentially like i think like she has some really really um great just i mean especially for a young actress like just just great acting in the, the sequence like all around Impressive. i'd have to agree um and in, in terms of scenes that just follow ellie uh to kick us off to starting about the film as a whole uh, there's a scene when she's at the VLA and she finally hears that like dramatic whooshing sound that she's been waiting her whole life for. And um, I think it starts as soon as she actually gets to um, the office and gets out of her car, but there is a single long tracking shot from her entering the doors and, you know, running through the hallways, just like slamming into doors <laughs> very dramatically until she can get into the office. And I, um, is another scene that definitely stood out to me in terms of not just like conveying how important this is for her personally, but like kind of building suspense. It's because it's like you're you're with her, like having to run through all these doors to finally get to the answer you've been waiting for. She's positively manic. Like the energy <laughs> is quite manic. And uh, I couldn't remember actually, like, I'm like, oh shit, do they like, is this like kind of like a false start where they lose the signal or something? And like her frantic, uh, 
energy like made me incredibly nervous like where i was like oh no 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 like don't don't lose the signal like <laughs> like fuck is this like is this gonna go poorly like and then they're gonna have to reacquire it or something and um you, you kind of feel that uh that gratification when um they've got everything kind of dialed in and you know things uh have a, a nice positive outcome but um yeah that's a that's a really cool sequence i mean she's hauling ass in that jeep too holy cow <laughs> <laughs> like when she's going back <laughs> There's a few scenes of her uh, driving recklessly. I don't think I'd want to ride with Ellie. <laughs> you know, she almost hits the uh, yeah. the benefactor. I'm spacing <laughs> on his name, but it's Tom Skerritt's uh, character. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, for me, like the opening sequence is also like a standout one. Um, the the music getting older as you get farther away from Earth, you know, which is like capturing like the sense of like time that, you know, would have had to have elapsed for the signals to get that far. And just like that sense of scope. Um, what's the, uh, the Carl Sagan like poem, the, the is it the Thin... blue dot or something? Yeah. yeah I, I'm terrible at remembering titles sometimes, but um, that's, I felt like that was a great like cinematic representation of that and the music. Cause I love music so much. Uh, just like really, I was like, man, this is a brilliant opening um, for like what the rest of this movie is or what I remember of the rest of it. So I actually have a fun piece of trivia about that. Apparently, at the time, it was the longest continuous computer-generated effect for a live-action film, oh. all the way up until 2004. Yeah, it cool. does go on for quite a while. Like, I remember yeah. thinking, like, what, wow, damn, are, like, are we just going to the edge of the solar? Nope, still going. Like, still going. <laughs> <laughs> Galaxy? Nope. Yeah. Um, I, I quite uh, enjoyed, too, like, that, the uh, repeated sentiment like kind of in conjunction with that child like be an awful waste of space because that's mm-hmm. literally the phrase that popped into my head and I'm like is this because I've seen this movie like a long ago or like um is this just like a sentiment I think a lot of people kind of share you know mm-hmm. yeah I, th- I think it's a sentiment a lot of people share but also like um I think it's something I don't know if Sagan has used those exact words but he's talked about that idea a lot I think in his other shows and writing and i think most people have encountered sagan to some degree <laughs> yeah whether um, or not they remembered it or not yes <laughs> i i would be curious um does anybody know like how faithful this is to the novel i didn't look i, I didn't want to like spoil stuff in the movie for myself um but i meant to look and forgot to um but i'd be interested to read read this book um to see kind of c- compare and contrast I've not read the book. I did a little bit of research because I was curious about that too. Um, the main difference is that there's uh, in the book, there's five scientists that are able to go into the transport device, not just okay. one. Um, and it has a much more international focus. Um, Sagan was someone who was very concerned about the Cold War and about um, the divisiveness on Earth between different countries, ethnicities, etc. And he saw like an opportunity like this for contact with another race, another species, as um, basically an opportunity to kind of bring the world together. So there is a lot more collaboration between countries in the book, and it is a multicultural group of scientists that do actually um, go up and meet the aliens. I feel like in the book, her dad also dies first. It's like her mom is still alive and her dad dies. And I mean, it's still like an important uh, influence on her. 
but I feel like his character is a lot more pronounced in the movie. And I only say that because I have loosely remembering that Carl Sagan did contact. I was interested and got the book and I started reading it, but I haven't gotten through all of it yet. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Unfortunately, her mom is almost like, like a throwaway, like plot device almost where they're like, Oh yeah. And your mom, it's like one line, like your mother died in childbirth. Um, and like, that's, that's it. Um, like, you know, you don't really hear much, like, it doesn't seem like it's odd because it just doesn't seem like something that resonates with her that she thinks about too much, like with how they portray her character. Like, and I'm sure some of that's like for time and, and you know, the stuff that you like you're constrained by, like with a, a Hollywood film. Um, what about the like the whole like love story? Not that I, I disliked it in the film, but it does seem like the kind of thing that would have been contrived by Hollywood. Um, so I'm curious about that aspect as well. No, 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 not that sure. That is a good question. All have right, <laughs> I'll, I... <laughs> I'll have to look it up. I mean, I, I just I, that's more of curiosity <laughs> than anything else. Like, um, because um, while I love the, um, you know, my favorite theme, like it, you know, and and May, you were telling me again off mic. This is a, a common thing with Carl Sagan, but uh, science versus religion, and the, and the and the relationship between those that the, they're not necessarily like mutually exclusive. Um, I think. Matthew McConaughey's character is a great representation of that. It's just the romance, like subplot, like didn't really work. I'll just be honest. It didn't really work for me very much in this, this movie at all. Like, I think it would have been a more powerful relationship had they been friends. Like personally, I don't know. How did you guys feel about that? Out of curiosity. It didn't feel too forced to me. I can't speak to whether it's in the book or not. Um, I do know that uh, outside the relationship, the depiction of Palmer in the movie is pretty spot on to what it was in the book. Um, I was just taking notes as I was watching and I wrote down what woman wouldn't channel their daddy issues into fixing Matthew McConaughey so (laughs) (laughs) I I can can see an angle where this is realistic (laughs) sure yeah Um, it's it's not a great romance though like the film could do without it 100% in my opinion um I just think, I think partly because they cast Matthew McConaughey, they're like, okay, this is a dreamboat moment. We got to have a list, at least a little spark. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I don't think it's so much necessarily like the, like, like the chemistry. I just don't know that it's like earned necessarily. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's just, again, it's a Hollywood thing. I think where um, people just like kind of meet and fall in love, like instantly again, because probably because of time constraints, like for, for the film, like that kind of thing. I liked their dynamic. Like, don't get me wrong. I just, um, I I felt more strongly about their interpersonal like relationship um, again with like the science and religion and some of those discussions than I ever did about like, you know, when they were doing the, the smoochies and um, you know, having pillow talk or whatever. <laughs> so yeah. how about you? Will? Did it work for you? Not work for you? Kind of hit or miss. Um, I think it's funny that it's like she really was interested as soon as he dropped the one line where it's, you know, like about it being a big waste of space. And you're like, oh, you know, like instantly attracted. You're so hot right now because that's exactly what I feel like, you know. And I thought that's I could kind of I could kind of roll with it just because I, I felt like, you know, Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey can make that work. Uh, and I can I can sort of believe that. But I think that it was. I don't know, for me watching it, I just, when I, I was so young when I watched it the first time. So like watching it as an adult now and, or like a mid, middle-aged adult now and, and being, and just thinking about, 
Yeah, I don't I don't think that that would have worked for me as much. Having watched it now is when I was younger and I could just kind of go along with suspending disbelief on certain things with it. Well, I mean, just in general with science fiction, but, you know, for the relationship aspect or like the <laughs> just the fact that now, you know, you watch it and you're like, man, all these guys just telling her what to do and, you know, taking credit for her work. And oh, I mean, I don't like uh, Drumlin, Tom Skerritt's character, uh, Dr. Drumlin in the book. I don't know if it's the same in the book as it is in the film, but man, you know, they make him out to be just this great A asshole taking credit, trying to, you know, old white man trying to tell everybody about this is just how life is. And you're like, oh my goodness. Like, <laughs> like yeah, it, uh, it was definitely, it was definitely something that I've forgotten about, but the met, I guess not to not to digress too much, but the the McConaughey aspect, I thought, yeah, it gets a little gets a little preachy, no pun intended, but it gets a little preachy after a while. And I thought, eh, would they have would they have really been interested, or would they have been better as just you know colleagues? And I I kind of agree with you. I think they would have made a, it would have made more sense to have them be colleagues that had disagreements or to have very you know enthusiastic disagreements because they respect each other. They both tell each other what they think and. You can kind of feel like, okay, one's trying to convince the other one a little bit to, you know, and, um, but at the end of the day, you know, they still respect each other, or at least it seems like it to me. So I think maybe like my hackles are up just a little bit because I I feel like this is very much in that era where like platonic like uh, relationships like just aren't really a thing that happened, you know, in, in movies. Like that's a pretty recent development where like you can have like you know uh, a male and female character like just be like friends like you know and there's there's no sexual tension or sexual like relationship in the in the film so i maybe like I'm, i was reading too much into it i don't know i don't think that it's necessarily bad it's just um it didn't fully work for me it was like this is not the most interesting I'll put it this way not the most interesting thing about, <laughs> your, about your dynamic as characters yeah yeah i don't know it like it it <laughs> It kind of worked for me just because it was so like impulsive and on again, off again. If they had shoehorned it in as like, oh, yes, this is a perfect love story. And she's just mm-hmm. head over heels for him. It's like, no, she's stringing him along for most of the film. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I, you, you can't just give it openly to, to McConaughey, man. You got to make him work <laughs> for it. You know what I mean? You can't give it too big of an ego. It's got a big enough ego. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. So I don't know. It, it it felt awkward at times for sure, but I don't I don't think the film would be hurt or helped by having it there or not. Fair. I'll I'll, I'll end on that note. Um, well, since you mentioned kind of like the just extreme barriers Ellie faces um, to like getting herself taken seriously and also getting her work done, um, the film actually consulted uh, Jill Tarter, uh, who was a Saturn vet uh, of SETI veteran. <laughs> oh, that's all. That's that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, a SETI veteran who was also kind of the inspiration for Ellie, uh, who was like able to kind of guide them on what it actually was like for women scientists in the 50s and 70s. Um, and uh, originally, the original producer, because this, this film ended up changing producers and directors and writers a few times, but uh, the original producer uh, really wanted. Arroway to have a daughter I'm sorry a, a teenage son an estranged teenage son and his he said and I quote here was a woman consumed with the idea that there was something out there worth listening to but the one thing she could never make contact with was her own child to me that's what the film had to be about 
And I'm so glad that, that they didn't do that because <laughs> why would you just shoehorn in this, this theme of like, you know, she could make this great groundbreaking discovery, but motherhood is what it was all about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I also, I don't think like you need to like, I think like the parental themes are already like, you know, very present in this and it would have been very odd to like contrast just like her dad being such an important part in her life and then saying like oh like i i don't know like she's i don't know it would have been too much i think like the the film does not have room nor i don't know it just doesn't seem like it would serve that character either at all that's one of my favorite debates (laughs) not to go on a tangent but um i had a an excellent um film professor uh dr sparks i don't know if you ever had her at clemson will but um she uh primarily wrote um you know film criticism like through like a feminist lens and uh she hated aliens and like there was there's a raging debate over like whether the character of ripley like by becoming more maternal is like less badass and like i don't know like like it was so fun to talk to her about um (laughs) aliens because she loves alien but like aliens like she loathed it um which is quite interesting but i digress um well, thanks yeah, for sharing that. The mansplaining is definitely real, and it was like <laughs> it was believable. Like just anytime somebody would talk over her, cut her off, step in front of the camera, it was frustrating. Like they did a great job conveying that frustration, and boy, she's got more self control than I <laughs> would have. I'm like, speak up, like. But to your point, like that's not that's not what the world is like or was like. Probably still not like for a lot of women in that field. So. Wow. Yeah, I think part of the reason it seems over the top too is like it was controversial at the time, I believe, to be involved with SETI and you know, search for extraterrestrial life. So I think she has like those two two knocks against her. She's a woman and she wants to find aliens and is throwing away her career to find aliens. Sounds like a catch to me, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I think like the the whole idea behind SETI is really, really quite cool. Like, it's one of those things. Is like, why not? You know, I mean, doesn't seem like it's overly expensive compared to a lot of stuff that money gets spent on. So, um, I love the idea of like that organization and that research, and uh, I, I like that they kind of framed the story around that um, as being what kind of kicks everything off. Um, so I wanted to talk make sure like before um you know we transition like uh, away from contact kind of like the end like the end of the film so like kind of like from where she uh is transported and all the way through the end of the film because i think it's a really interesting um sequence so i don't know it's probably about like a half hour last half hour of the film or so is what covers that um so i'm gonna open i i have thoughts but um May, since this is your nominee, I would love to hear what you think first about yeah, kind of the last um, half hour. Also, I do want to wrap up with a couple of interesting controversies from the film. Oh, yeah. Done By all means. Discussing the content. Yes. But um, I, so I, I'll admit, I was like kind of like doing stuff on my phone a bit when I was watch- rewatching this, just because I've seen it so many times. Uh, and my head just jerked up when... Uh, she walked onto the platform to get into the pod because there, to me, there is such a huge shift in the sound design and also um, just like the costuming and um, 
lighting of the set in that moment, it gets very scary suddenly. Like I, my heart rate increased a bit as I'm watching her go down that plank because everything is very dark. She's wearing this very futuristic space agey metal suit. Allegedly, it was based on Joan of Arc's armor also, which is mm. cool. Don't know if that's actually true, but allegedly. Cool. Um, but yeah, it just, it feels so sinister and ominous. And the only sound, there's no talking. The only sound is all the machinery whirring around her. And I felt like that really set the tone for that the rest of the scene for me. When the fucking door closes, like I'm not claustrophobic, but I was like, fucking hell. Like where there's no seam or anything. <laughs> and it's just like, uh, just a wall that's, you know, like no uh, visible door. Uh, but yeah, that, um, I definitely clenched up a bit. Uh, that's a good point. They do a great job setting the uh, the tone for sure. Um, I, so I know uh, yesterday, um, again off, off mic, man, you and I talked a little bit about uh, some of the things that I felt like didn't hold up. Were like some, were some of the CG effects. I do like the transport scene uh, largely. Like overall, uh, there's a lot a lot about it that I like. Um, but some some of those like occasion like some of the wormhole effects and things like that. Um, just kind of a, I don't know, byproduct of, of the time that it came at where like CG effects were, were very new and, and expensive. And, um, but I, I think like largely like that sequence works, um, pretty well, like, uh, of all the special effects stuff in the, the movie, I really enjoyed that, uh, kind of reminiscent of 2001, a space odyssey a little bit, it reminded me of like the, you know, stepping into the Stargate, um, very different, um. I think uh, whereas like the 2001 uh, sequence I would call trippy, like this is scary. Like, th- I mean, to your point, like yeah. with how they set the the tone is quite scary. Um, how did you find it? Well, did you, did you enjoy this? Like, Anna, you said you hadn't seen this in a while either. So I'd be curious to hear. How you I, def- I, I think the, I think sort of the warp tunnel effect still kind of holds up. I definitely agree with you about the, because, you know, you sort of watch a lot of the CGI, whether it's the actual, like the apparatus of the device or as the pod drops through it and you're like, okay, yeah. But I mean, it's, I, I don't know, part of me still feels like it, it still looks realistic enough to get the point across and for what they had at the time and what they could afford at the time. And um, no, I, I think it still, it still holds up for me. Uh, but I, <laughs> I think sort of stepping back a couple uh, paces for the, when she's walking across the catwalk, I think the one thing that kind of, I mean, besides that, I mean, cause it is definitely sort of terrifying with how high up she is. And it's like, I can see right through the grate. I can see everything. And it's, that's sort of mirrored in the fact that she's, when she's in the pod and, and the floor starts to glow because of the device and she can see through it, you know, and, uh, but I don't know. I just, I thought for all the safety quote unquote protocols that they wanted to have with her sitting in a chair that they didn't want to like, you know, make it a little bit of an easier tunnel to walk out to the pod, you know, and not scare the <laughs> shit out of everybody. Like, Oh, you, you're not worried that the force of the wind from these turning, you know, parts of the device, you're not going to throw her off. There's, there's no concern and then like the two dudes that were behind her who for a second i thought okay so they're just going to stand at the other end and just let her walk and like <laughs> no we're we're done that's this is as far as we go lady it's all you and then pleasantly surprised to see they actually came to help strap her in but um i guess back to the the warp tunnel and all that i thought i don't know i thought it was pretty cool just the the idea of what that would look like um and the visuals about when it's not in the warp tunnel when it's like okay she's popped out someplace else and you can see sort of the galaxy that she's in and the stars and maybe a couple of planets i can't remember 
um, specifics on that. But then it's like there's almost like a shadow or something that's above her that she sees for just a moment. And then she's pushed back into it again, like she was in a hub, like redirected her someplace else. And and so, yeah, I thought that was I thought it still held up pretty well. Um, and the fact that, you know, she's in that chair that's making everything shake. And then there's the the little flashes where it's like time is distorted a little bit where you see things like her face sort of melds into another image of her face off to the side that's going to say something that's about to happen. And the camera gets all trippy with like uh, proportions and, you know, and then... Um, yeah, I, that's a long stream of conscious on my on my part there. But yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. I, I felt like it helped kind of keep you in the moment. And then when she finally realizes that, uh, you know, if she detached herself from the chair, that it's like, actually, this would have been a much more pleasant trip. But, you know, obviously, all the men that designed this thought it was better to put a chair in there. Yeah. Anyway. Um. <laughs> I, there's a funny detail that I didn't notice until I read about it and then rewatched it and caught it. She gets out of the chair to grab that compass. Yeah. And a yeah. throwaway line early in the movie where the like where uh one of them says, Yeah, this could save your life one day. Right? Like joking about the little compass. Yeah. Yeah, that's um kind of like I think it plays a little bit into that like whole uh like the faith uh, part like how faith kind of uh it works in tangent with science a little bit like yeah obviously unstrapping yourself from a chair or not having a chair at all would be a bit of a leap of faith and uh, to your point may she's not doing it in that moment because she has faith in the design it's kind of purely by accident but i think it's like kind of a telling moment for her where she's like oh um shit okay uh i probably should have just um believed a little bit more and the science like hell if i'm gonna jump into this thing and go on this internet like what's what's one more little tiny leap of faith on top of that you kind of see like she's like oh all right like noted like <laughs> i will follow your instructions more carefully well, yeah and i like the fact that they made i mean she made such a big point about it earlier in the film about you know like i like that was her one disagreement was the chair she was like in all the schematics there's no mention of a chair why do we need to have this in there and they're all like it's for your safety yeah and then it's like, actually, no, I, I never would have needed it. It would have been fine. I probably would have been fucked, <laughs> like, honestly, if I'd stayed in it, you know? Yeah, exactly. My body thrown up against the ceiling when it finally got to its destination. So, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I, I, oh, go ahead. Hey, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say the art design, I think, is what saves, like, you, like, you know, some of the CG. Like, even though, like, like, it's very obviously early CG and a lot of these bits, like, the art design is good, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's convincing, like, in what they're trying to, to convey. So that's all I was going to yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with, with those ideas of, like, chance and trust and faith, because, like, those, those are, like, kind of the big themes of the movie. I guess I kind of want to ask what you get, your guys' takeaways are, like, thematically or or message wise because it, it feels at times like it's not a subtle movie at all <laughs> but it, I, I feel like the ultimate kind of kind of meaning is very much up to interpretation yeah um I don't know like I I think so like probably one of the most on on the nose things for me in the movie was like the fact that it's like a religious terrorist that like sabotages like you know like they made such a big point of like oh you don't believe in any kind of higher power 80 percent of the people on the planet marianne and i were like that seems high but maybe like i actually <laughs> fact checked it it is around 84 percent currently 
Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, but they made such a big deal about it. And, um, you know, like, obviously, like, that's what leads to sort of <laughs> the the sabotage of the, um, you know, the, the original machine is like sort of a fundamentalist uh, take on this and uh, like what it means for humanity and that it's sort of this blasphemous thing, right? Um, I don't know. Like, I like I think there were moments where I kind of seesawed. I'm like, so is he saying like, religion like is bad i'm like i don't think so though because like the matthew mcconaughey character like is somebody who seems like a very rational like person um and so i kind of landed somewhere in between honestly where i was like i think this is a a movie that says like they don't have to like scientific don't have to be mutually exclusive um but it seems to be very much like a science first kind of like message right like like that like you should use science to understand like the world around you. Right. Like, like religion should never come at the expense of like science, but that was my, I guess my biggest takeaway, I guess. I think it was interesting about how, uh, at least for Ellie's character, how she sort of, she goes from the one, you know, like it has to be for the science to work. You have to have the proof. And I, you know, I need to, I need to see scientific evidence to back up any assertion that you're telling me. At least that's what she says to Matthew McConaughey when they're arguing about religion versus science. And at the, at the very end where nobody really believes her except for maybe if, well, I shouldn't say nobody. There are people that believe her because they're outside. After the scene when she's standing before, or sitting before Congress and kind of recounting what had happened and she's getting basically the read the riot act about how it's like well if you can't prove it then you know you obviously this is all just coercion or you're just making this up or you know this is actually this there's outside people involved in your work have influenced what you're trying to tell us to make us believe that you actually went to this alien you know planet and you know not like they haven't constructed this giant amazing piece of technology to send something anywhere but I thought it was interesting how it's, you know, then at the very end, she's the one who's asking them to take her on, you know, on a leap of faith that, you know, all she has is to tell people what she experienced. And suddenly it's like, now they don't want to believe her when other people before have been sort of not necessarily uh, all the characters, but certain characters, whether primarily Matthew McConaughey about the, you know, you, you sometimes you just have to take it on faith. And so I thought that it was it was interesting to see her character kind of experience that and to yeah. understand from that perspective, okay, sometimes I can't, I don't necessarily have all the evidence that I need now, except for my own experience. Um, and to have that conviction about knowing, you know, this something did happen. Um, but yeah, I think that it is, it's also sort of unfortunate too, that you see realistically so. I mean, you see the different aspects about what people are like when something so divisive like this happens. I mean, this is kind of like sort of in our current time where people want to disagree with science or they think that science has a different interpretation or that they don't necessarily think the science has their best interest in mind. And so, you know, you always have that that parallel that you see. Like, I mean, they even had like neo-Nazis, I think, were one of the groups that were hanging out. Out, camped out outside when the device was getting built you know you saw all the religious people that were fanatically opposed to it you saw or the, you saw the you know the, the people that were out there that were like yeah bring back elvis you know <laughs> it reminded yeah. me of, of a music festival a little bit like the yeah. vibe like, it <laughs> exactly. was very much like 
That oh, scene no. aged surprisingly well, which is disappointing. Right? <laughs> And so, and also sort of the congressional hearings and, you know, the... I had a flashback to Blasey Ford watching that scene. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, yeah, this is actually very appropriate, um, relevant, unfortunately so, um, for a lot of that. And also kind of a very realistic representation of what people would be like, whether they would be for or against it. I do want to point out... um, I, I man, I was so frustrated when they were like, "Oh, there's 18 minutes of uh, stat." I was like, "You kept that to your fucking selves in the hearing, didn't oh, yeah. you? Like that would have that would have been useful, like to know. Yeah. Come on now, like yeah, what do you think that's lighting. about? Like it just yeah. it seems so odd to me, like like that they would like keep that out, like because that's pretty important evidence. Is it maybe they don't want to like admit to the public that like she probably went somewhere, so she's just kind of become this like sacrificial lamb, like that they're gaslighting. Uh, like it was so weird. I think that's I think also ha- changed from the book. Oh, okay. Actually, because I think it had to do with the fact. So H.R. Haddon, the uh, what's his name? It's the other guy from Alien that was in the John Hurt. Um, this is a big old Alien reunion. Yeah. I know reunion <laughs> without them ever actually interacting. Um, but I, that was something that I didn't know or appreciate because I don't think I'd actually seen Alien before I saw Contact. So I thought that was really cool going back and watching that. But. Um, there was a comment where I think H.R. Haddon's character, and I don't know if he's in the book, he seems like he would have been uh, the Hollywood edition, like <laughs> pre-Jeff Bezos kind of character. But it was He is like... based on Bill Gates, I read. Oh, hey, well, that's... Hey, all right. Like if Bill Gates went insane is the description I saw from uh, <laughs> the, the director. <laughs> nice. Oh, man. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, that... that... That makes a lot of sense. Well, then the, uh, I guess he had made a comment about how there were certain people that didn't want him just because of his wealth and his, uh, I guess, his influence. They didn't want him to succeed in certain things. And so I thought, you know, as soon as when Ellie mentions H.R. Haddon is sort of like what she's being interrogated as somebody who's influenced her, then it's uh, James Wood's character who just immediately hops on it. And he's like, yeah, this guy who has the wealth and the resources to, you know, like he had that line queued up. He was ready to just hop all over that guy. And I thought, okay, so I assume that that was his, he had an ulterior motive and he just wanted to basically scapegoat somebody else who unfortunately for the sake of the story had already passed away, but didn't necessarily know that at the time so i just that's how i read that i thought he just had a vendetta and he just used ellie as the tool to get again get back against that guy and discredit him i i guess in his defense and not that i i uh relish the idea of defending that character didn't sound like he like even was aware of that like in the report like they kind of show him as yeah like i skimmed through it yeah (laughs) (laughs) again uh would have been useful in this fucking congressional hearing so maybe it's less about like some nefarious means and more of it's just like that wasn't the point he didn't care about that so like it didn't even give it the attention right so (laughs) i think it was also to keep the ending kind of open-ended in terms of like the question of like oh what really happened because i feel like if they hadn't mentioned that like there there was at least a little tiny bit of physical evidence it would have seemed um i don't know more wishy-washy of an ending yeah i remember being very disappointed as a a young lad uh at like the like kind of the reveal of like the the aliens or the you know like what like interdimensional i don't know whatever they're like supposed to be (laughs) 
um and all that and like as an adult i quite enjoyed like that they're like oh yeah the, the people that made this technology or the, the the beings that made this technology like they're long gone um because it's like it's very mass effect which is like one of my very favorite favorite video games um which is like i mean that's that's pretty much the what mass effect's about is that like over and over again civilizations all come to the same point like through like bits of technology that are left behind and then like rise and grow together and like have interspecies like kind of contact and then something happens that wipes them out um, and it all starts over again kind of thing. So I thought that was kind of a, a neat, I liked it much more as an adult, put it that way, which surprise, surprise when you're, oh, I would have been 11, like so 11 years old, um, probably not going to uh, enjoy uh, an alien story where there's no shooty, shooty, bang, bangs, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Valid point. Um I I would like to kind of wrap up talking about the content of the film with two quotes, if that's okay. Yes. Please. Uh the the first is from the film and it's the end of the Vegas Aliens monologue. Um and I, I feel like this really kind of conveys the ultimate message of the film. Um in terms of like the kind of like science religion question. Uh the alien says you feel so lost, so cut off, so alone, only you're not. See, in all our searching, the only thing we found that makes the emptiness bearable is each other. And I, I, I feel like so much of what's driving Ellie, but also Palmer, like Ellie towards science, Palmer towards religion, is feeling disconnected or lost or like, you know, having lost someone. And I, I, I feel like that searching for something else or someone else out there is very much driven by that. And I think that's kind of what Sagan is saying here. Say, call, call your kid. Why, why, why haven't you called your kid? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, and then like, he, he does talk about religion a lot in his other books and texts. He actually wrote a book. I found out just in the research for this called the demon haunted world, uh, science as a candle in the dark. And in that book, he says, science is not only compatible with spirituality, it is a profound source of spirituality. When we recognize our place in an immensity of light years and in the passage of ages, when we grasp the intricacy, beauty, and subtlety of life, then that soaring feeling, that sense of elation and humility combined is surely spiritual. Amazing. I I love that. That's, uh, I mean doesn't surprise me uh given again like having just watched this film like i'm like yep i can (laughs) definitely see where a lot of this came from and kind of where you're coming from um i i will admit i've not read any carl sagan other than that poem like but after seeing this i'm like i want to check out some i bet you this is an interesting fella with some interesting things to say i can lend you one of his books actually yes please yes (laughs) Awesome. Well, uh, I, I'm not going to let you skate by without uh, hitting us with the controversies. You said you had yes. controversies to close it out. So, <laughs> Okay. Uh, the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to say the group that either complained, sent a cease or desist, uh, or uh, sued the film. And I want you guys to guess why. So first of all, NASA, why do you think uh, they had a problem with the film? I'm going to guess safety protocols. you're you're close they're like portrayal of like like maybe like maybe like they feel like it didn't it didn't portray them in like a favorable light like like people would suddenly feel like 
I don't know. Then they didn't take it serious. I don't know. Like that's that's my guess. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of the catwalk. That's that's all. <laughs> that's, I mean, we'll can't get over the catwalk. I mean, it's like what I think about every time I watch Star Wars. I'm like, no one thinks of handrails in this universe. No one yeah. thinks this catwalk is like is freaking terrifying. Like, yeah. So I'm many OSHA violations. I know. Um, so it's it's kind it's not that it's kind of safety related. Uh, NASA like released a statement after the film clarifying that they do not have never and do not intend to give its astronauts cyanide pills. Oh, that oh, okay. um, if I think they even went to say that if an astronaut was in a situation where uh, suicide would be preferable to their fate, they could just disconnect their oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> just pass out. <laughs> just pull off their helmet. Um, uh, Carl Sagan uh, was still, or no, wasn't was it Sagan? I think it was Sagan. Uh, someone on the film crew insisted that no, the the pills are actually. <laughs> accurate and so they just left them in they said well nasa we don't believe you wow (laughs) yeah uh the white house also had a problem with the film they sent i think an actual like uh strongly worded cease and desist letter bill clinton why did you repurpose his face talking about other stuff about aliens correct it was the use of his likeness they had a problem with that it's funny because uh, the the clips that they pull of Clinton speaking are real clips, but they're just completely out of context. It wasn't one about like Saddam Hussein and another yes. one. I can't remember what the <laughs> other one was about. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And I remember that being a big deal at, at the time when the film came out. They were like, this is the first time we ever used like actual footage of a president that we repurposed. And yeah, but I didn't realize it was like that big of a deal. Like they were angry. I, I just remember it being a big deal. So. I don't think they followed up after the letter, but they did write a, a strong letter after it came out. <laughs> just so you know, we don't love this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, CNN had an issue. So I remember like like Larry King is on at certain points. Like I think even I saw a young Wolf Blitzer like somewhere there. Uh, I don't know. Nope, I'm stumped. Well, uh, I don't know either. So uh, they actually CNN actually let uh, around a dozen CNN reporters onto the film, including like Larry King and others. Um, and after the film came out, they changed their ethics policies so that a board would have to review whether that was like possible or not, because uh, they did not like how the film turned out and thought that it was like lending false legitimacy to the film's claims or whatever to have actual CNN people on it. So, hmm. which is weird because you, you say, I feel like I've seen that many times since, like where like yeah. you'll see like you know it can still be Cooper. done, but they have like an internal ethics review board just for this now. That makes sense. I feel like yeah. it's also more common in comedies, like than like serious stuff too. I don't. That could just be like recency bias or something. But hmm. yeah. And then the last one, save the best for last. Francis Ford Coppola or Coppola. <laughs> what do you think he had a problem? Damn, with? <laughs> I, I'm gonna think like, was there anything? Uh... And I will say this one was different. This was an actual lawsuit. Really? Yes. Ah, damn. Like, I was trying to, like, so I think he might have been on, like, the Italian, like, uh, anti-defamation, like, league at some point. And I was trying to think if there's any portrayals of, like, Italian people that, like, would be questionable so. in this. I no Italians in this film at all. Yeah, no. Maybe that's either. the problem. <laughs> no, yeah, like, hey, wait, this is international, right? <laughs> uh, no, I give up. I'm, I'm stumped on this as well. 
he claimed that uh, Sagan had actually come up with this, the, the general idea of contact as a TV show with him about a decade prior mm, and okay. was suing for like partial rights and income from the film. Mm. And his suit was thrown out because I think the way IP works, like if you have an idea for something, that's not the same as saying, oh, I have this early version of this thing that is partially mine, right? Right. So having half of an idea is not worth all that much in the eyes of the law. <laughs> <laughs> Very wow. interesting. Oh, I appreciate it. I, I hadn't heard about the the Bill Clinton thing I knew for sure. Um, yeah. The rest of those, like I had not heard. So thanks for sharing. You're welcome. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much all I have for contact. I'm glad you guys uh, enjoyed it or at least enjoyed talking about it. <laughs> oh, I, I, I yeah, had a really good time with this movie. It was awesome to rewatch it after so many years of not having seen it. I had a, a fantastic time. Um, this was a great first one. Yeah, definitely. I, think- I appreciate it a lot more now than I did when I was a kid because kind of like what Chris was saying about the, you know, the shoot em up alien flicks, like that was, <laughs> that was much more the mindset for me back in 97 than now so absolutely i think this could be a great example of a movie that like will gain probably more um or probably has gained a a bit more like status like as like time has gone away like there's movies from this era that you definitely watch and you're like this has not aged well i think overall this movie's aged very well Mm -hmm. i would agree thanks for the nomination and that's one down that's one down How many total are on our list again? Uh, well, we have enough for 78 episodes uh, pre-loaded. Like, um, you know, as the show progresses, we'll see. Uh, yeah. You know, we might, like, just continuously add to the list or we might, like, break this into seasons and, you know, decide more to come on that. We'll have to figure that out as we, as we move along, for sure. I did want to end the episode with a little game uh, for... Uh, our our uh, audience listeners and for, and for you too. Um, so I am calling this Oscar over under. It's Oscar season currently, and I've created a little game where I'm going to uh, give you a film, and then I want you to tell me if the second film I give you got more or less Oscars than the first film. So you're going to say I think it won more or less, and I'm going to keep track of the score. Okay. All right, so your first film is Braveheart. And I want you to tell me if The Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, got more or less Oscars than Braveheart. This feels like a trick question. I promise I didn't like purposely try to do, I just, I picked interesting sort of pairings uh, sometimes here or there. And uh, I promise I'm not always trying to be like deceptive. I didn't know the answer when I made this. That made, I just sometimes, not always. Yeah. Well, no, I, I didn't. I genuinely <laughs> didn't like some of these. I knew like what, as I was writing them, and other times I just picked two films and then said like, I wonder which one more. I got surprised a lot. I'm going to say over because that's my gut. But well, let's say Lord of the Rings got more. More. All right, you are both incorrect. Oh. Brave, Braveheart got five, uh, really? and these are wins, not nominations, that, to make that distinction. But yeah, five okay. uh, Oscars versus Fellowship of the Rings four. So Ooh. close. It was close. Uh, your next film is Titanic and I want you to tell me did Gladiator win more or less Oscars than Titanic I 
feel like a lot of this has to do what year each film came out, and I cannot remember the year Gladiator came out for the life of me. These are not always the same year, by the way. Like, um, so like if you're like wondering if they like split the votes, like I don't think I picked any that came out the same year as the other. So okay, also also another distinction to make. I'm gonna go with Titanic. So you think um, uh, Gladiator I'm, had less than Titanic? I should qualify that. Yeah, I do. I think Titanic had more. I think Gladiator yeah. had more. I think Gladiator had more. All right. Will is correct. Ah, damn. Titanic <laughs> is currently tied with two other movies I won't mention in case they ever come up again uh, for most Oscar wins with 11, like in Oscar history. And Jeez. Gladiator had four. So <laughs> I was just remembering wow. that Leo, like, didn't get an Oscar forever. <laughs> I know, yeah. If that guy didn't get one, then how could this film have done as well? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. All right, so that's one point for Will. Still all to Ooh. play for here. Your next film is Jaws. <laughs> I want you to tell me, did The Graduate win more or less Academy Awards than Jaws? I'm going to say Jaws had more. Okay. I'm going to say Jaws had more as well. You're both correct. Jaws had three to the graduates, one, which was Michael Nick- Mike Nichols' uh, Best Director Oscar. A lot of nominees or nominations for that, but just one win. Hmm. All right. Your next film is Star Wars, A New Hope. So the original <laughs> Star Wars, OG. Did Rear Window have more <laughs> or less oscars wouldn't be me if i didn't have at least one hitchcock in there so rear window more or less oscars than the original star wars can i just say i appreciate the comparison of the two like of all the, the ones that you want to put back to back those those two <laughs> solid. that's a solid comparison um okay see i don't remember how star wars there was like originally received though is the thing i feel like rear window i just has more uh, yeah i'm sorry yes <laughs> I, I guess it could make this easier just say well. which one do you think is more yeah, yeah <laughs> we've changed the title of the game uh yeah I, i'm gonna go with your window for more please final answer lock it in oh god um i'm gonna say star wars just to be different because i have right. no idea that is a win for me it is yeah no nice. star wars star wars the force is with me six yeah. six Oscars. Rear Window is our first goose egg with zero zero Oscars. Much to the heartbreak of Mr. Hitchcock. He never personally won an Academy Award other than a Lifetime Achievement Award. Nominated many, many times. I think he's like one of the most nominated directors, but uh, only won one Best best Picture, and that went to the (laughs) producer David O. Selznick for Rebecca. So, How did Rear Window not win anything? I see like and the thing about this that uh doing this research research taught me was that like hindsight uh number one is like a big thing like with this like it just goes to show you that awards like really like don't matter like it's cool but like like time is going to be the thing that tells the best of all but um and I'll I'll share another lesson after uh because I don't want it like to influence your uh your decisions too much so (laughs) By my reckoning, that is now uh, one point for May and, oh uh, no, sorry, two points for May, two points for what? So tied. Trying to say, excuse me. Uh, it's, it's, it's because <laughs> I put a different different initial um, uh, down. That's what threw me. So. She got robbed, guys. She got robbed. 
here we go. Who's ref in this game? <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, add that to the list of controversies. I'm, I, I'm feeling like Ellie Arroway right now. <laughs> Just not getting Wait credit. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank everyone for coming to my TED Talk about contact today. Uh, thank you so much. It was my idea. It was great. <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna retroactively call it uh, Will's uh, suggestion, just in theme of the the movie. Uh, You're like that shiesty bastard. Anyway, so bringing us to our halfway point here, I want you to tell me. Uh, we'll just say which one more: uh, Schindler's List or The Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King. Oh man. <laughs> I'm going to say The Return of the King. I'm going to go with Schindler's List for more. All right. May is correct. So one of of those other films that uh, is tied with um, Titanic is The Return of the King. Had the distinction of winning every category that it was nominated for. So all 11 categories. It was a clean sweep uh, for Return of the King. Would you like to know why I picked that one? Sure. I have a distinct early memory of the DVD box for the Return of the King and all of the awards on the cover of the All oh, the DVD marketing. Box. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Loads of them. Not like a promo for mark good marketing. <laughs> all right. Uh here we are into the back half. Uh I want you to tell me which war film here won uh more Oscars. Was it Saving Private Ryan or Apocalypse Now? What is the more awarded film for academy awards i'm going off of gut because that's been good so far i'm going to be saving (laughs) private ryan and not to sound like i'm trying to to use may's uh luck as well but i also feel like saving private ryan is it (laughs) you're both correct saving private ryan five (laughs) academy awards apocalypse now two schindler's list had seven by the way so uh Definitely on, on the prior one, uh, no slouch uh, as far as awards go. But all right, your next two films are Unforgiven, so 1992's Unforgiven, mm-hmm. directed and starring uh, Clint Eastwood. Easy Rider is your second, directed and starred uh, with Peter Fonda. I'm telling on myself, but I haven't heard of either. <laughs> I haven't seen both, either of them. Yeah. Both both bangers, really good. <laughs> I wish I had a coin to flip. What sounds like a more, <laughs> not that that helps, but what are you giving the Oscar to? Unforgiven or Easy Rider? Depends on your mood, I guess. I'll go, I'll go with Clint Eastwood. I'll go with Unforgiven as more. I'm also going to do Unforgiven. Sorry, Will. <laughs> you are both correct. It is yes! Unforgiven with four. So Easy Rider is zero. So Easy Rider is like widely considered like one of the best like early examples of a like an indie film. And it's in my favorite era of Hollywood filmmaking, which is the Hollywood Renaissance or New Hollywood uh, filmmaking. Really, really good. Young Jack Nicholson, he actually has most of his hair. Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda. And it is all about uh, discovering the American dream on the back of a motorcycle going cross country. Really good. All right. Uh, and Unforgiven is a uh, real, it's like the opposite. A very, very, well, actually both of them are kind of sad at times, but Unforgiven's a revenge story uh, starring Clint Eastwood where he's like 
you know, hung his guns up, no longer living that life and uh, gets pulled back into the life of a, a gunfighter through circumstances. It's very good. Kind of like John Wick. they take his car his horse (laughs) actually quite interesting too because it like deconstructs like all the like romantic western like stereotypes that had been like really prevalent up to that point so it is like a revisionist like kind of like this is what it's actually like to kill somebody it's not like oh they fall off a roof and fall through a lumber pile and it's like uh like it's yeah uh, very very um interesting um to see because he was in those types of movies right when he was younger like some of that stuff um so all right next set of films we have a fish called wanda which is also brilliant if you've never seen that and as good as it gets so you tell me which one you think is the most decorated i'm going to say as good as it gets because that's as good as it gets (laughs) you are both correct just (laughs) barely uh with two wins it uh nudges out a fish called wanda which had one uh all acting uh oscars for both of those so uh you had helen hunt and jack nicholson both winning for as good as it gets and a fish called wanda i believe was kevin klein all right we're nearing the final stretch here uh i'll give you a score update before we go into the final question your next one is the exorcist and Scarface, which film is the more decorated film for Academy Awards? Scarface or The Exorcist? I'm going to go with The Exorcist. I had to go with Scarface. It is indeed The Exorcist with two Scarface, oh. a big old goose egg. No. <laughs> All right, let me tally up tied? the score. You are indeed tied. I can do a tiebreaker if I need to on the fly. Your final two films are Fargo and Boogie Nights. Fargo and Boogie Nights. Oh, jeez. Is it the crime thriller directed by the Coen brothers or the 1970s, not really a biopic, but atmospheric film about the pornography industry and disco? What is the more decorated? I'm going to have to say Fargo. I want it to be Fargo, but I feel like it's Boogie Nights. I'm going with Boogie Nights. May is the winner. Nice. It is Fargo. I mean, I got what I wanted. I spoke first, (laughs) so that helped because I feel like you couldn't have said the same one as me. (laughs) You could, you could have. I said I, I I could have made a tiebreaker. Ride your coattails into victory. Two (laughs) Academy Award wins for Fargo. Zero. For uh, Boogie Nights, wah, wah, wah. I do prefer Boogie, Boogie Nights over Fargo. Fargo is great. Don't get me wrong, but I love Boogie Nights is just fantastic. Like all PT Anderson movies or most PT Anderson movies, so very good. So that's well, that's uh, good, probably good game. Not- well, <laughs> right, thank you. Yeah, shake, shake hands. Uh, won't be the last time we play that. We have several different games, um, you know, to choose from to to close out our episode, so we can have a little bit of fun. Uh, after we have our discussions and that brings us to our next topic slash film selection here we are going to draw from the pile so i am going to give the cards a little shuffle shuffle and this is going to dictate 
what we watch next and talk about next. Here we go. Ooh, all right. So our topic is unicorn or dead horse. Uh, yeah. The film, drum roll, please, is going to be <laughs> Stroll 2. <laughs> it's Stroll 2. Yeah. Another nomination by May. Did you stack the deck? Chris. I, I did i shuffled i like it is there's a video proof uh that'll be in the <laughs> podcast that i shuffled so our unicorn or dead horse category since this is the first time encountering it is such talk about whether or not a specific sequel enriches or harms the franchise that spawned it <laughs> now i do feel like may i want you to contextualize this a little bit is troll a true sequel uh so fun fact trolls too uh while one might think it would be in the same uh franchise as the original trolls movie these are not the animated movies that are, have been coming out in like the 2000s this is earlier uh late 19th century uh, or 20th century kind of stuff but uh <laughs> i'm contextualizing this in the most confusing way possible it is not a sequel to the original trolls movie it is its own movie with its own like writers, cast, directors, all of that. And they just thought that they'd have better like marketing if they said it was a sequel to the Trolls movie. <laughs> so I think in light of this, I do want to watch the original and the sequel. So I have context because I think like with a couple of points, this is going to be quite, <laughs> quite a fun uh, watch or, you know, um, in discussion, really, honestly. So we should have a discord watch party for this one. I think I think you are correct <laughs> just to get each other through it. <laughs> so there you are. Uh, could not be two different first films contact troll to uh, cannot wait to hear what uh, both of you think about this. And as always, audience members, please engage with us uh feel free to give it a watch and let us know what you think and also i want to clarify it is actually troll 2 not trolls 2 that is the copyright difference Mm -hmm. yes a horror movie for one animated movie for the other we are watching the horror (laughs) film correct that's yep yes (laughs) fantastic well thank you both so much for hanging out and discussing movies as always thank you audience members for listening and supporting the show give us a like give us a share give us a subscribe uh tell your friends that's really honestly the best way that a podcast can grow is just word of mouth um and you know thank you for for supporting us so far we hope you're enjoying it we i know we are definitely i'm gonna just like contact i'm gonna speak for my colleagues and take all the credit (laughs) (laughs) thanks everyone yeah thank you look forward to the next time bye